Hi, I'm Tara Beckett, and welcome back to Let Perfect Burn. Today I sit down with Sarah Tomakic, a licensed sex therapist. Sarah sits down with me to talk about early traumas, as well as her winding path to finding her calling as a sex therapist. Sarah's self-compassion and her willingness to be the most authentic version of herself that she can be is a gift to her patients. today with Sarah Tomakich. Full disclosure, we were friends back in middle school and we were talking before we started recording about how Facebook and social media is this weird thing where we see each other's lives without necessarily talking to each other. So I'm really excited to have you, Sarah, and actually get to hear more about your journey. Um, we were also talking about this diary we had in middle school where we were practicing how to be rageful teenagers um but we were closeted like it had to go in a diary uh sarah is this something you remember i do i remember um writing to the diary and asking it why i was so angry why or why i was so mad i don't remember the exact text but i remember being you know um very interested in the diary's feelings about anger. <laughs> I, I think it was, dear diary, why are you so upset? And oh, why are you so upset? Well, of course, it has to be a little bit quieter. Why are you so upset? Diary? Yes. Exactly. No big feelings exactly. allowed. Um, right. And I think we responded, who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I digress. Uh, Sarah is a sex therapist and has a long journey uh, with some cool twists and turns. And Sarah, I would just love to know, uh, as you went off to college, or maybe you need to start a little bit before then, take us down your winding road and how you got to where you are now. So Tara and I grew up in Michigan together. Mm -hmm. And so there was an airport that was sort of in in the neighborhood of our, where we grew up. So I would drive by the airport all the time and um, thought about that I wanted to take a lesson. So I convinced my mom to go in and talk to the flight school about taking a lesson. And then the flight instructor guy was really cute. <laughs> so I was sold. <laughs> and 20 years, that would became my career for 20 years. I was a professional pilot. I flew for... Um, families that had a lot of money and had their own airplanes. I was their private pilot. Ooh. So, yes, yeah, so I got to travel to many beautiful places. I went to Aspen for Christmas and stayed in the Four Seasons in New York City. It was a very glamorous life. Um, in the in-between time, though, I got married and my... Um, I got married and divorced. Hmm. And when I... I quit flying after my divorce and moved to Washington, D.C. and did took a consulting job, mm. which ended up being like a particularly serendipitous experience for me because um, 
within a walkable distance, I found my therapist. Uh. <laughs> and I went to therapy, originally presented into therapy because I wanted my therapist to validate for me that I won the divorce, that mm-hmm. I was right, that I, I should have, um, that I was a good person and I um, was right about the divorce. Well, that really <laughs> didn't work out no. that way. No, and ended up, had my therapy ended up becoming like truthfully a very life-changing experience for me. We really dug into sort of what it meant for me um, to be an angry person, to be angry about some of the things that my life had sort of, that were confusing to me mm-hmm. and inexplicable. Uh, and, and, and through that, that course of my own therapy, I, I loved therapy so much I wanted to be a therapist. <clears throat> and so that after the divorce, that was, uh, seems like that was the turn into something new. It wasn't. And that was now looking back, I've been divorced for a long time that I can look back and look at my divorce as something that was very um, good for me. It was something that really helped me move into one of the things I learned in my therapy and through the course of unpacking my divorce was that I really believed that my love was so strong and so powerful that I could turn my ex-husband into somebody that I needed him to be. Mm. That he wasn't just okay as he was, but I needed to fix him. I needed to love him into fixing him. And that it was my very strong will that could save our marriage and certainly not a healthy Mm. way or a way that I wanted to be in relationship. Mm-hmm. And would you say he was trying to do the same? I would say he was more avoiding his life. He, mm. he really, um, I think he had different reasons for, I think we both used each other to escape our lives. Mm. He, I needed to figure out a way to get out of my family home and he offered mm. a way out. And I think I did the same thing for him, but we just, we were, using each other for different reasons. You know, one of the things that I like about being a career change therapist or a therapist later in life is that I already brought with me a lot of opinions and a lot of feelings about what it means to be a therapist and what kind of therapist I wanted to be and who who I was as a person. And truthfully, the most important thing to me about being a therapist is showing up authentically in therapy, showing up as myself. And that was something that in my previous career, really, you don't show up as yourself. You show up as a part of the machine to do the work. But one of the things I really love about being a therapist is I I show up in therapy as myself. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is truly so important to me so that I don't have to hide or I don't have to. um, And I'm not for everybody for that reason. Mm -hmm. Not for everybody. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But I really like that I can show up and and I'm me. I'm a therapist. Absolutely. And when you say I'm a sex therapist, what do you think people think about what you do versus what do you do? Yes, I think that's such a great question. <laughs> My friends who are sex therapists too, and I talk about this, we're like, we people must imagine we have like these crazy sex lives that no one knows about. <laughs> really, you know, our sex lives are so much less important. But I'm a sex therapist because I think that I'm the kind of therapist that wants nothing to be taboo in what we talk about. Mm-hmm. I like talking about death, sex joy, pleasure, pain, all of those kind of things. And I think when I'm a sex therapist, it sends the message that you can come in and we can talk about anything. 
Mm -hmm. I'm open to anything. Anything that is on your mind is welcome in my office. And Mm -hmm. so that's how I conceptualize being a sex therapist. And sex is part of all of us. We're born from sex where most of us are having it or would like to be having it. And so it's Mm -hmm. a big part of life, just like death. And so these are the things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about the things that are really impacting our lives. And I think that my sex therapy banner really advertises that, 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 that openness. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking we grew up, I would like to call it like plain vanilla ice cream, Michigan. And (laughs) I didn't understand how, what pleasure was or, um, you know, all I knew was that the people having sex in high school were kind of the dirty kids or you didn't talk about it at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And it just didn't seem like there was any healthy conversation available to us where we lived. No. And I think that's one of the things that I like about being a sex therapist is that one of the, um, fun parts is I get to be sort of like an adult sex educator, Mm. which means I can center pleasure. I don't have to pretend that sex isn't fun or that sex isn't enjoyable or that sex is something that we should want and desire and, and that arousal is a part of our life. I get to dig into that with people. And I do think that sex education as children is limited because I think there is sometimes secrecy involved. Like here's a thing that's going to happen. But like you said, the connotations are, it can be that it's bad. It's dirty. We don't talk about it. We talk about it only medically Mm -hmm. and there is no emotion connected to it when sex is a very emotional, it can be a very emotional experience. Absolutely. And I, it, in good and bad ways, right? Like trauma can come from sex. Pleasure can come from sex. Um, You know, the whole gamut feels like it's available just in talking about that topic. Just in that topic. And that's what's so cool about it. It's this umbrella topic that there is no one way to talk about it, but there's always an emotional access point to sex. There, It is not, you are not devoid of yourself when you're having sex. And if you are, that's, there's an emotional experience that's happening because of that. saying that flying was an exit out of your home. What were you escaping? Ah, such a good question. I think I had a very confusing childhood. My parents were kids when they had me. Mm. And one of my favorite authors, Alice Miller, talks about how often people who grow up to be therapists were therapists when they were kids in the way that we had to negotiate the emotional lives of our parents. And I think that that really encapsulates me. One of the, one of my gifts as a therapist is that I can navigate the emotional lives of people, but I had a lot of practice in it and I started very young. Uh, I joke sometimes with my mother that she's my first patient, Mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a joke based in reality. You know, she, she was a young very young when she had me and I think that it was a confusing time for her very much a confusing time for me as a child I'm, I'm re, I got remarried and my husband and I have been together for a few years. 
but when we were dating, I lived in this apartment. It was like uh, across the street was a Coney Island, mm-hmm. <laughs> which if you're from Michigan, oh. Coney Islands are like a huge. Oh, you know, right? After like, every football big, game. Uh, <laughs> after every football game, the Coney Island. So we were across the street at the Coney Island, and one of his ex-wife's relatives saw us there, and reported to his ex-wife that I was five foot ten. This is an important part of the story. So, um, he, she texted him later that night. I I know your girlfriend is five foot ten, and we sort of thought that was curious, but we didn't really think much of it. If you fast forward three years later, his daughter, um, their their shared child, got on my bike and was surprised that she could ride on it because she said to my husband, I'm surprised I can ride on Sarah's bike because she's five foot ten. So an important part of the story is that I am not five foot ten. I have since adulthood been five foot seven. But I think part of what happens when we're kids is we there's folklore that exists around things. So like for instance, I'm a five foot ten woman and this was the folklore of that family. And even in the face of our own realities, our own standing next to me, seeing that I was that I was five foot seven, can't necessarily be trusted because when one of our parents tells us this person is five foot ten, that becomes our reality. And so part of my job as a therapist and part of our jobs as adults, I think, is to look at can I trust myself? Can I trust that Sarah is five foot seven? Can I trust that that my reality and the way that I experience my reality is real instead of integrating what are the folklore from our families. And that I think really is our job as adults is to figure out what's real and what's what was part of the folklore of our family. Yeah. So Sarah, that is hitting me hard in that I feel like I'm just now at 40 coming into an authentic self. And that can be really exciting that I actually got there (laughs) and it can feel really sad that I didn't know how to for a long time. And did you have a similar experience or something different when it came to, you know, being this person you are now? I had a very similar experience. And I think that one of the things I admire about what you're doing here is you're modeling that healing happens in community, right? Mm-hmm. We need helpers to find find our own reality, to find our own truth, to learn that we can trust ourselves. And what you're doing with this podcast is creating that that group of helpers to say, this is how I arrived on this journey. Mm-hmm. And that was a similar experience for me. My experience of figuring out what in my life was a five foot seven woman and what I had been told was a five foot 10 woman that space in those three inches created so much grief for me Mm. because of all the people that I want to trust and all of us want to trust in our life are the adult caregivers. Mm. We want to believe that they're helping us find our own reality. Mm -hmm. That is, that isn't always the case. And I think that that space in between there creates so much, can create so much sadness. And that was my journey was really getting in touch with that, that grief. And truthfully, like we talked about earlier, Mm. uh, a lot of rage. Why yeah. didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me she was five foot seven? Why? Why was this like this? And that was really, really a hard journey for me because I felt I had to first go to my anger to get to my grief. For me, one of the best 
parts of my journey was my journey into forgiveness. And it wasn't forgiving them for, for doing the best that they could, but it was forgiving myself for needing more and not getting it. Mm -hmm. To say that it was okay, that I needed more that I didn't get. And I forgive myself for 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 wanting so badly that I that I squashed her. That I squashed that person that mm -hmm. needed more. Mm -hmm. And that that journey for me, forgiveness I just play with it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is for me to be gentle with that person who needed more mm -hmm. and didn't get what she needed. But it's not for my parents, it's for me. My parents mm -hmm. were doing the best they could. And the forgiveness comes from me wanting more and not being able to get it. Mm -hmm. And for me, wanting more um, and not even asking. Correct. Not even knowing how to ask. Mm -hmm. Or feeling like if I did ask, I was crumbling some kind of image that if it crumbled, what does that mean? And do I have any value if I'm not doing the thing? <laughs> if I mean, uh, my husband and I were talking about this the other day, like one of the value, something I value about myself still to this day, but that was something I placed an even higher value on early in life was my competence, right? Mm -hmm. I could figure things out. I didn't need someone to help me. I could sort it. I could do these things. And I think that that, that was a way that it was harder to say, I need help. I need mm -hmm. something. I need more. I don't know. I have needs. Like to be able to turn it back and say, I need is, is a difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm also, like you said, with creating community, um, I'm hoping that we as women can need, can get hungry for honesty and falling down and falling apart or being joyful. Like we can also celebrate together. Heck yeah, we did something. Uh, but I just feel like for me, I've always felt pretty silenced if I go outside, you know, by society, if I go outside those limit, those limits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think being a messy person or being playful sometimes is very difficult as an adult, right? To say I really want to find that playfulness and that messiness and that I don't need to know how this is going to turn out for it to be okay isn't necessarily what you're supposed to do when you're mm -hmm. competent mm -hmm. and good at things. And, you know, I you asked me... Um, you know, when I reached out to you and wanted to have you on, you're like, how did you know I was a perfectionist? And I'm like, I don't know. I had an inkling, right? And what is being a perfectionist to you? And, you know, I, I feel like I don't know that it'll ever leave me. And I don't know how you feel about it. I don't think it ever does leave me. I think it's, it's I liked that you framed in your intro, uh, sort of being in recovery. I like a recovery model, which is the way that my perfectionism is a high value to me because it was something I needed at the time to feel my own value, to feel valued by others. And it's still there if I need it. Um, it's still there, it's still accessible to me. But I think for me, being a perfectionist was kind of what I talked about with my ex-husband, mm. was loving people with an expectation that they'd be different. And one of the things that being able to recognize and identify my perfectionism or my rigid way that I looked at people was to, to be open and loving to people as they come to me. 
is to say, I don't need you to be any different than you are today. Mm. And that's kind of, that of course always starts with us, right? Was that I no longer feel the need to be different than I am today. That what I'm offering, who I am is is loving and messy and disappointing and gross, and but enough. Mm-hmm. Enough for me and enough for those around me. And that is, that is my recovery. My therapist, who I also have a very close relationship just because she has been there for all of the stuff, right? And you just form this bond with this person who has held you in all of these states. And I was really, really frustrated with my session um, yesterday because, you know, I'm changing medication and it is so frustrating because this symptom over here goes away, but then you feel like you want to throw up all day. And so it could feel like this will never end. It'll never get better. What is the point? And, you know, thinking about perfectionism as a recovery or mental health as a recovery, um, trauma as a recovery is, you know, the boat is slow moving. <laughs> like It's not yes. it's not like the perfectionist snap your fingers, will it to be so. It's not that way. <laughs> I wish it was. And this is, I wish it was, too. And this is such a hard thing. And I... Um, think about this a lot, how we logically, like I logically knew for a long time, like whatever I was doing wasn't working, but it was the way I knew how to do it. It was the way, and it was, it's very difficult to sort of integrate your logical experience with your emotional experience, which is much harder, which is just much more, I want to say ruthless in the way that it's honest with you. second marriage um can you just talk about meeting your current husband and how was that different than your first marriage that's such a good question because i think about this a lot so i met my husband when i was in my late 30s and i think that i had already been through my therapy i was really looking for a relationship where we both could just show up as ourselves, where it didn't have to be something that was <laughs> this pre preconceived notion of what, what a good marriage looked like. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that I, I will say the thing I am the most proud of in my life is my marriage is my, and my husband, mm-hmm. because we show up when it's messy, when it's difficult. And he is certainly my biggest cheerleader. And, and he really is like, <laughs> such a wonderful confidant and I really give that the credit to to both of us for being able to show up and even when it wasn't easy you know I hate when this is hard for me because I hate when people are like marriage is such so hard marriage is such hard work and I think it is marriage is hard work but I like the work the hard work that we do because it's about being in connection with each other it's about not losing sight of the connection and that is something that is really um really valuable to me and really something that I am very proud of in my life is that the work that I had done letting go of my perfectionist tendencies and my expectations that people had to meet a certain standard to be lovable Mm. has really brought me a lot of peace and a lot of joy in my marriage. That's awesome. Um, So Sarah, like you were talking about with a five foot 10, five foot seven story, he has children from another marriage. 
Yeah. Can you mm-hmm. speak to that and how, how to navigate that? I don't know that, you know, one of the things that's, I work with quite a few, um, step parents. I think I wrote to you about this too, is that parents, I think it's such a hard label because I'm, I'm not a mother by the standard of motherhood. That means that I have born a child or adopted a child to raise, um, I define motherhood a bit more broadly. Mm-hmm. That is for me to decide, but I'm, but I do not have uh, children of my own. And I think that each family is so different and blended families are so challenging in their own way. And I think that again, we're dealing with, you come into a family with their own folklore mm-hmm. and then you're just sort of this person that's in this new role. And I really prefer in the way that, that my step family is arranged to be my husband's wife. Like that's the role that feels most comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like their stepmother. I would love to be their step friend or their step adult <laughs> yes. that is connected with them in a way that like, I care about them. I, I make sure their favorite ice cream is in the freezer and I do these little things to, to make sure that they're comfortable in my home. But I don't take, I don't worry about their future. I don't worry in the same way that a a mother would do. Mm -hmm. So I think that that, but every person has to find what works for them. And one of the, one of my clients who's come into a step role, she and I were talking about this, about how there's a way people will say things like, you knew what you were getting into. You knew what you signed up for. You know, the kids will always come first. And there's all these tropes around step familyhood that can be very difficult when you're in the situation to say, did I know what I was getting into? Mm. Will the children always come first? Because just to pick apart that the children will always come first thing, it sets it up where love is a pie Mm. and there's only so much love to go around. And one of the ways my husband and I have decided to do it is that our in our relationship, the marriage prioritizes the children. So we decide together that the children are a priority, but there is no, he loves one of us more or less than anybody else. Yep. Love is infinite and he has infinite love to give. And so there is no, he loves the children more or he loves me more. He loves all of us mm-hmm. and he loves all of us in the infinite way that love exists. But I think that that prioritizing of love has somebody on top is an old folklore from a lot of people's families too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or yeah. And I'm just thinking about the trope that you mentioned about, you know, the children will come first. It almost feels like it's setting up the, the partner and the partnership for failure, right? Like, sorry, sorry, Sarah, you're never going to get, what you know the, as much as you need you're gonna go hungry if you marry this man amen and i think that that's why 67 percent of second marriages end in divorce is because we have these faulty tropes around love being a pie love is not a pie love can and one of the things that can happen is if you set it up where the children always be the priority and you come second if you have a need where does your need go then? And the children know this. They can exploit that. They don't do this intentionally, but they sense this imbalance. And so they know that they can they can separate the the parent and the step adult from each other because of the, the, the when you make love hierarchical, it, it sets everybody up for feeling uncomfortable, for feeling boundaryless. And when you 
when you I think when you set it up where the adults contain the children, mm-hmm. whether it's a step family situation or a family of origin situation, the adults contain the children. It 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 doesn't you don't divide people. You're all there together for the same reason. Yes, and I am guessing there's either in your own therapy or as you work I struggle as a perfectionist to remember that triangle of actually (laughs) you at the top is the most important thing and then your partnership and then your family. Right. And even with kids that I, you know, had on, had through my body, right. Or if you have stepchildren in your family, um, it feels like remembering that triangle every single day because I always flipped the triangle upside down um, and put me at the bottom. And that's what we model for our children then, right? Is that our needs are always coming last. When we are comfortable in our triangle saying that I have needs and I'm comfortable owning those needs, even if they make others uncomfortable, we're modeling autonomy, we're modeling needs and one of the ways people talk us out of those things is to tell us that we're being selfish by doing that. that it's selfish for us to have our own needs and our own wants and our own desires and our own hobbies. And I think it's part of our job to just not buy it. I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Not buying it. Nope. No. no. I'm a better person when I can show up fulfilled. therapist is an author and he wrote a book and he says that he believes that therapists like doing therapy because it's like being in therapy all the time (laughs) and there is something I love that because I'm like yes that is why I love being a therapist because my my the people that I work with teach me as much as I hold space for them and so I don't I think my divorce was a gift to me in that way yes in the way that it helped me see that what I was doing wasn't working that what I was doing was I was a hamster on a wheel that was going somewhere that was only going to wear me out. Mm. And so, yes, I, I feel very thankful for my discovery. I feel thankful I found the therapist who was right for me because that can be a journey, too, is finding your therapist. Yes. And Sarah, I, I feel like we're coming full circle in that um, just, you know, in middle school, we had that rage closeted mm-hmm. <laughs> and anger. Mm-hmm. And... Yep. I think we are definitely on this journey of not being closeted anymore. And it feels good. <laughs> feels good. Right? It feels good to be out in the open and be like, yes, I get angry. Yes, mm-hmm. I have a full range of emotions of which I am not going to mute for others' comfort. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm not not that you and I are both not conscientious and kind and giving people, but these are things that it's just, we're tired. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of pretending that it's okay. Because now I know it's not and I can't pretend anymore. Yeah. And it's freeing. <clears throat> it's freeing. It is. You know. It's orgasmic. Yes. <laughs> um, to just circle back to that sex therapist. It's orgasmic. Right. It is. <laughs>
want to call it conclusion because I really hope we can just keep this conversation going. It's awesome to talk to you uh, and just to hear your story. What does Let Perfect Burn bring up for you? Mm. You know, I really like the work that you're doing because I think that it's such an important thing for for each of us. And I think what you just like we were talking about modeling before, you're modeling that there is no right way to do this. There is no right way to figure out how to unwind the stories of our life, how to figure out if the stories of our life are our own stories or they were stories that were told to us that we've integrated. And I like watching this with you and being a witness with you to, you get to figure that out. And I so I think what let perfect burn means is I needed my perfectionism. It helped me. It protected me from some things that happened to me. But now I don't want to be I don't want to live as protected anymore. And so I think that idea of it burning is that idea of it slowly eroding away the idea that whatever's underneath is who I want to meet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, want to meet is a good way to say it because that is what continued therapy and continued um, work in this space asks me to walk up to this person and give her a look, right? Yes, absolutely. Give her a look. Ask her what she's doing there. How does she, what does she look like? You know, one of the, the th- one of the activities I do with my clients all the time is to be like, what does she look like? How old is she? Where, where did she get lost? What is she hiding behind? I mean, not because I think it's important to be curious about our sin. Like this is my, this will this is my guiding mantra is that I think it's always important to be curious about ourselves in that way of developing a, a very connected inner world. What is my inner world like and what does it give me? Mm-hmm. And what did it, why did I need to protect it from somebody? Yes. <laughs> and my therapist one time, not one time recently, actually, uh, I had this idea that if I was struggling with mental health, there was something to fix. If I was doing my perfectionist thing again, I wasn't being authentic. There's something to fix. And she said, Tara, like there's going to be times you put your lipstick on and present in a way where you got everything together. And there's going to be times where you call me with no makeup sobbing and you can't stop. Right. But put an arm around all those women and give her love and compassion that she has all these different moments. And that just because you had this crisis that really affected your life and that you're doing all this work doesn't mean that all those pieces should disappear, right? So, oh, I love that so much because I really do think that that's, we're all pieces. Like I'm part of my perfectionist is part of me. She protected me. She was there. She's there when I need her. I need her, all of her. My angry part, you know, while I don't have to access her as often, she's there if I need to protect myself. She's there to defend and advocate for me. But, and then there's the sad part of me that gets to come out and play too when it's really meaningful. But there is that the, all of those parts. I love that you. I love this that your therapist gave you this image because it's all of those pieces are pieces of us, and none of them need to be discarded or changed or fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Well, Sarah. Oh, this is so fun. Um, I love the work you're doing. <laughs> it's so um, real and brave, and you know your patients are so lucky to have you in their camp, um, just to really 
be able to have somebody who shows up in the way you clearly show up for them. That is huge, which you and I both know is when you get that person, um, they really are integral to your self-discovery. So it's been a pleasure. And hang in there. If you haven't found, if you haven't found the right therapist, keep looking. Yes. It's, it, it's not you. It's if you haven't found the right match. Yes, absolutely. So, and you know, Sarah and I will say a million times, listeners, therapy is this thing where if you are interested in that authentic self and discovering her, like you said, find the right person, but they will take you on a ride that is so worth it. Mm-hmm. I could not agree more. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much. And let's keep this conversation going. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Bye. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.